Situated on the Thames, Staines is a bustling town of some 40,000 people. It isn't far from historic Runnymede, but has little history of its own, with the exception of the fact that Sir Walter Raleigh was tried there in 1603. One small fact that caused Staines to be avoided like the plague, at the time of which we speak, was the massive traffic bottleneck created by a totally inadequate bridge over the Thames. This bridge was forced to carry most of the traffic from the southwest of the country into London. Traffic pileups, particularly in the summer months, often exceeded four miles. The bridge, built in 1829, was finally replaced when a motorway was constructed. All the requisite examinations, including the police promotional exams were now completed and behind me. All that could be done, beside work competently, was wait my turn to appear before a selection board. These boards were held, on average, twice a year. Provided successful completion of the various exams was achieved, seniority played a large part in the eligibility to attend these boards. The lack, finally, of examinations to sit was found particularly satisfying and afforded me great peace of mind. However, promotion and the certain subsequent transfer were not preoccupying my thoughts. I was completely happy where I was, doing what I was doing. Then, it all happened. A serious robbery was reported as having occurred at the Shepherd and Film Studios. These studios were on our manor and, in fact, a previous detective inspector at Staines was then the chief of security for the film company. At least we could look forward to complete cooperation. Two men, wearing masks, gained entrance to the studio offices and threatened the cashiers with a sawn-off shotgun. They were thwarted in their attempt to steal the £15,000 cash about to be paid in wages by resolute cashiers. The men were last seen running towards Ashford across open country. In a remarkable gesture, which I appreciated, I was placed in complete charge of this investigation, my first major one. Suspecting that the men had not walked to the fairly isolated studios, abandoned suspect vehicles were sought in the vicinity. A large, green Wolseley was found which was taken to the police station for forensic examination and fingerprinting. This car was, later, to afford me the privilege of meeting two truly tremendous people. Immediate local inquiries produced descriptions of two men seen at various locations in and around the area. Pins in a large-scale map indicated that the sightings could well have been the persons responsible for the robbery. The times and places were certainly consistent with men running away from the scene. One of the sightings was by a policeman returning from court outside the area. He was unaware of the attempted robbery, but noted the man's description due to the highly suspicious circumstances. Three housewives, also, were found, who described two different men. One of these men had run through a garden while the housewife was hanging out the washing. Within a few hours, we had good descriptions of the suspects and had satisfied ourselves that the Wolseley had, indeed, been the vehicle used. Information received from a resident close to one of the men's home caused us to visit him early the next day. His house and vehicle were searched and forensic samples taken. Then he was taken to the police station where later he stood on an identification parade. He was picked out by three people. Local knowledge led us to a colleague of the prisoner. His home was visited and the same routine procedures followed. He was picked out by one person at his ID parade. Both were charged. Two masks were found, thrown away in open country through which the suspects had taken flight. These were sent to the forensic laboratory with the other stuff. Later, solid forensic evidence, hairs and saliva, was available linking one man to each mask, each man to the green Wolseley, dust and dirt on their shoes, and one man to the shotgun, fingerprints, which had been found in a shallow lake at the rear of the studios. Partial fingerprints of one man were discovered in the Wolseley and, in addition, property originally in the Wolseley was found in the home of one of the suspects. All of this enabled a very strong case to be prepared. One prisoner, 
with the most to lose, did try an alibi attempt. Due to various factors, it failed miserably. An alibi, produced for the first time at the court of trial, was already an endangered species. The best legal opinion could see the inherent dangers in such a late defense. Lack of time to disprove a well-concocted story was a serious drawback to justice. In the event, this case was one of the last ones such an alibi was produced. Afterwards, any alibi defense had to be produced early enough for the facts to be checked by the prosecution before the trial. The alibi defense declined dramatically in number thereafter. When tracing the owner of the Green Wolseley, the owner was shown to be an Admiral Luce. It was already known that the car had been stolen from Chelsea two days previous. Chelsea police gave me the telephone number of the owner. I spoke to him on Saturday morning and, after informing him of the circumstances of the recovery of his car, asked if he could attend Cannon Row Police Station to have fingerprints taken for elimination purposes. Admiral Luce not only agreed most pleasantly, but also volunteered to take his wife, his son, and his chauffeur with him. This was rare, unexpected cooperation. Because it was a Saturday, I telephoned Cannon Row to make the necessary arrangements. This was done because, on Saturdays, CID officers used the afternoon to mingle with the crowds at various sporting events like football matches, i.e. they goofed off and watched sport. The CID officers, like all of us at the time, were working a 13-hour day, six days a week. There was no overtime in those days so they were, perhaps, entitled to a little free time, the only person in the office was the detective inspector. After being told what to expect, he willingly cooperated. Later, the debt. Inspector called me. He was in a bit of a state. Do you know who Admiral Luce is? He inquired. I'm no sycophant, but there was a certain degree of surprise when he told me. The Admiral's correct designation was learned to be, Admiral of the Fleet, Sir David Luce, GCB etc., First Lord of the Admiralty. One home was in a sumptuous apartment situated within the Admiralty Arch at the top of the mall at Trafalgar Square. This is where we were to meet on a few occasions. As is usual in such cases, much personal contact was necessary between owners of vehicles stolen and used in crime and the police. Property, found in the Wolseley and also in the suspect's house, had to be identified by either Sir David or his wife. In addition, full witness statements had to be obtained and liaison maintained in view of the upcoming court cases. Through it all, I can honestly say that I have never been treated better, or more fairly, than I was by this extremely important man and his wife. I was made to feel welcome in their fine home. On one occasion, Sir David was dressing for an important formal dinner. He instructed me to remain until he was ready, as he wished to discuss something. Meantime, as usual, Lady Luce entertained me cordially. Later, after a lively and interesting discussion, Sir David was in all his finery, I was escorted to the private lift. The lift arrived, containing about six very senior naval officers. Seeing me, one commented pleasantly, Ah! You must be the Admiral's policeman. It was good for my ego, to think that Sir David had seen fit to discuss the case with such eminent men. Both Sir David and Lady Luce were happy to cooperate in any and all ways. Lady Luce attended at the inhospitable Feltham Magistrate's Court, bearing a travel rug and a picnic hamper. She had been told that it might be necessary for her to remain all day in the cold, drafty general waiting area of that ancient building. She was content to do just this. Lady Luce never demurred in the slightest. For the trial at the Central Criminal Court, Lady Luce and her son were patiently waiting, again for hours, with all the other witnesses. They asked for no favors or special treatment, whatsoever. Sir David, however, in light of his position and the fact that he was due in a cabinet meeting, was allowed to carry on his duties. Arrangements were made however which meant, when I called his office, he immediately left the cabinet office and attended the old bailey.
A car and driver were awaiting his summons, so it took only seven minutes from Whitehall to the court. After an interesting and successful trial, the judge sentenced the men to 12 years and 10 years in prison, they had previous convictions. The commissioner commended us for the investigation and the result. I was promoted to detective sergeant. Seldom have I met people as kind, considerate and cooperative as were Sir David and Lady Luce. They were utterly devoid of any condescension or pretension. Both of these fine people were genuinely more willing to assist, in any way, than most others with far less to occupy their time. I was sad to read of Sir David's resignation over a matter of principle. It happened when the government, of the day was withdrawing Britain's naval presence in the Pacific Ocean and, I believe, abandoning the battleship philosophy. Sir David, in his official capacity, disagreed and resigned. It was an act of a true gentleman, so I was not surprised to read he had done it. Shortly after this, I found myself at Shepherd's Bush on F Division, again. Detective Chief Superintendent John Du Rose, a super and successful detective, was organizing a team of officers to investigate the murder and dumping of six unclad prostitutes in and around the West London area. It was, up to that time, the largest and most protracted murder inquiry to have taken place. About the only clue we had was that each body appeared to have remained stored for some time in surroundings that preserved the tissue and covered it with dust. A place with a circulating cool air flow appeared likely. This could, of course, be natural, or fan-driven. Somewhere adjacent to spray painting was a lead given us by the forensic people. Numerous very vague sightings of someone suspicious had been reported. These were nowhere near definite or clear enough to begin to act upon them. Exact cause of death was a mystery, too. The bodies displayed no signs of injury sufficient to cause death. Lack of air, in one of numerous possible ways, was the best that was forthcoming. The best theory, regarding the cause of death, was that the women choked on an abnormal penis. Apparently, this could happen easily, without the victim being able to take, what would seem to be obvious, even automatic, action to prevent it. This fact, of course, meant that the deaths might be accidental and the killer might, then, have panicked. However the act, of blatantly and callously continuing an obviously dangerous sexual practice, could lead to a successful prosecution. Vast amounts of time was spent taking dust samples from, literally, thousands of locations. The most bizarre place, from which I obtained a sample, was from the cadavers and surroundings of an area bombing parlor in Chiswick. These dust samples were all examined at the forensic laboratory. In addition, teams of male and female officers moved among the street walkers and pimps at night. All vehicles seen merely to approach prostitutes were noted. Details of the cars picking up women were circulated for others to keep under observation. All persons seen approaching prostitutes were logged and, if possible, followed. Another team of men, of which I was just one, followed up these sightings. Every driver, seen with a prostitute, was interviewed, and full written statements obtained regarding their movements during specific times. It is fair to say that not one profession, employment or work was not represented in the people we interviewed. Policemen, publicans, politicians, priests, plumbers, from accountants to zoology professors, all were seen and interviewed. Most of the people we interviewed were cooperative and we, being solicitous, always tried to interview a man at his workplace rather than at his home. If, however, we encountered stubborn lies and prevarication, the threat of returning, later, to his home was invariably sufficient to bring forth the truth. Policemen, generally, prefer the easy way, but they can play hardball if necessary. Tens of thousands of people were interviewed and supplied statements. The organizational skills of the office personnel, all police, were, necessarily, superb. Finally, suspicion began to center on a security guard. Without his knowledge, he was thoroughly checked out. 
The guard traveled by company car to many factory sites during his, permanent, night shift, and was known to have been in all the areas the nude bodies had been found. Additionally, he was known to have a peculiar sexual appetite and to have picked up prostitutes in the same area that the dead women worked. He was also found to have known, personally, two of the women. He was a known curb crawler. The marked security firm's car, it was thought, might have facilitated his free movement through the area, whereas other vehicles might have been stopped and checked. Over six months of investigation had been conducted and the main suspect was about to be netted. Suddenly, a suicide stopped all conjecture continuing. The suspect had killed himself. His suicide note was ambiguous. It could have referred to his complicity in the crime and his feelings of shame and guilt, but it didn't actually spell it out, unfortunately. The murder stopped with the suspect's death, so something good happened. At the end we found out that, latterly, there had been some doubt about the composition of the control dust sample. Maybe, it was said, it wasn't sprayed paint dust after all. These so-called scientists. We never learned the result of any final analysis. Fortunately, the murders remained unrepeated. My private hunch was that the bodies might have been stored for a few days in the disused tube tunnels at Wood Lane. However, we'll never know. I remained working at the bush, as it was colloquially known. The work was plentiful, interesting and varied. The manor, mainly, was lower middle class to poor, in statistical demographical language. Robberies and serious assaults were very common. Motor vehicles were stolen at the rate of well over 100 a day from the whole Metropolitan Police District, so we had our share. Housebreaking and shopbreaking were common, but seldom involved huge sums of money. Theft was commonplace. The most common nuisance was the antiquated practice of installing gas and electric meters that demanded cash be inserted to obtain the utility. These meters were looked upon as savings banks by many people. The theft, or borrowing, of money from these plentiful meters was not recorded as a crime, for many reasons. The CID office was a friendly madhouse. Crimes were numerous and averaged over 50 a day. To combat this huge number we had eight working officers, two detective sergeants and six detective constables. In addition there were two supervisory staff. Not long before the times of which we speak, a royal commission on the police had reported that, optimally, each investigating officer should deal with no more than 150 crimes a year, if a reasonable rate of detection was required. We, each, had more than the yearly quota before the first two weeks of the year had passed. Nor were we alone. A countrywide investigation occupied me greatly. The forerunner of the ubiquitous credit card was being used by many long-distance lorry drivers, to obtain petrol on their travels. Some service station staff were forgetting to return these cards to the drivers and, when the drivers were well away from the scene, were debiting the card. They were then able to pocket the cash from their till. To add to the confusion and scope of the inquiry, some drivers were deliberately leaving their credit cards behind and then reporting them stolen or just lost. Some success was achieved, but to tackle the whole job would have meant a mammoth and far-reaching undertaking, for which we didn't have the manpower. We, therefore, only concentrated on the fraud that actually occurred on our manor. Necessity is the mother of invention, and passing the buck. In the middle of 1966, Detective Inspector Coote, my immediate boss, offered me the Q car duty for three months. The Q car was a plum posting. It consisted of freewheeling the whole division in a nondescript car with a driver and an aid to CID it was similar to aiding again except that, now, there was a good car at your disposal. As was the custom, I was told to pick my own crew. The finest driver at the station was Jeffrey Fox. Fox had great experience and, more importantly, was still extremely keen. I then picked David, Dave, Wumwell as my aide because he, too, was an extremely keen and willing officer. 
the days, until the beginning of the posting, could not pass quickly enough for my liking. A week or so after the news of my upcoming sinecure, Christopher had arrived at the station, on promotion to sergeant, from the stolen car squad at CO, the yard. Christopher was a fine man and an able officer, but I disliked him almost immediately. The problem was that, because he had no outstanding paperwork or court cases, he was completely free to take over the Q car. I, on the other hand, had more than enough paperwork and court cases to keep me occupied for months. I could see the point when D.I. could explain the situation, but I was not keen on relinquishing my position on the Q car. It would have been a very pleasant three months. Chris had inquired about the crew, but, as he knew nobody on the division, he decided that my picks were as good as he would get. Consequently, the next week, Foxtrot 1 left the station without me. I settled back to the normal hectic routine, not without some regrets. Life proceeded normally until August 12, 1966. A group of us from the CID office went to the Beaumont Arms pub at Shepherd's Bush Green. The Q car crew were there and we all joined up for lunch, and a pint of bitter. After lunch, we all walked back to the Nick. Shortly afterwards, and upstairs in the office, I looked out of the window to see the Q car leaving the station yard on its patrol. I thought nothing of the incident. An hour or so later, a report of gunfire was received. The location given was near to Wormwood Scrubs Prison. Four of us jumped into the station Hillman and drove to Braybrook Street, which runs past part of the prison walls. We approached from Old Oak Common Lane, at the western end of Braybrook Street. The whole journey we had been light-hearted and flippant. Deriding the thought that it was gunfire, more likely a car backfiring, someone had said, and we all laughed. Driving on Braybrook Street, we saw the Q car stationary in the distance ahead of us. We all thought that it had arrived ahead of us and, frankly, we were pleased. They, then, could deal with the matter. This would save us the task of completing the lengthy and time-consuming reports. By the time these idle thoughts had been assimilated, we were nearly at the actual location. It was then we saw the full horror of the situation. All three officers were dead. Fox at the wheel of the car which had, somehow, mounted the body of Chris Head who was pinned underneath. Dave Wumwell was lying near the gutter, a short distance away, clearly dead and with a gaping hole in his head. My stomach retched and terrible feelings of nausea came over me in great uncontrollable waves. Apart from trying to organize door-to-door inquiries, which was done to some good result, it turned out we officers from the bush were not involved with the highly successful investigation that followed. Detective Chief Superintendent Dick Chitty took command and he thought the local officers would be too involved. Chitty was a man of vast experience and he was probably right. However, it was extremely hard to work alongside the murder squad and try to keep one's mind on the everyday duties we had to do. I was one of Chris Head's eight pallbearers, both at the local church and, later, down in Torquay where he was finally laid to rest. Chris had been raised by his grandmother, not unlike my situation. I found it an honor to meet this fine lady, and the remainder of her family, in Torquay. A memorial service was held at Westminster Abbey and all the bigwigs attended. Nothing can bring back the brave officers of Foxtrot 1-1, however. I am not ashamed to say that I woke up during many nights thereafter, sweating and with an uncontrollable shaking over my whole body. The nightmare of seeing one's colleagues in such a manner as they were found is hard to dismiss from the conscious, or unconscious, mind. Work continued, unabated. Promotion was in the offing, again. Somehow, my heart wasn't in it anymore. For the longest time, I felt ashamed to believe that I had lost my bottle. Time, however, has allowed me to analyze my thoughts and feelings. So many months later, I discovered the reason for my disenchantment. The truth surrounding my lack of enthusiasm, for the work I had enjoyed hugely, was the sudden, certain realization of the total, 
utter and complete futility of it all. Three fine men had died along with countless others, some of whom I also knew, all striving to serve and protect the public. A public who appeared unable, or unwilling, to supply sufficient resources, thought or will power, to even slow, let alone stop, the steady slide of civilization down into the depths of degrading depravity. Talk, there was plenty, mainly from politicians. Action, there was none. To this moment in time, I see only confirmation of these firm beliefs that began, in all earnestness, in 1967. My conscience wouldn't allow me to continue doing a job, in which I had so little confidence in its worth. Previously, I had naively believed that I was doing some, just a little, good. I knew it wasn't much. I found out, after Braybrook Street, that I didn't believe this anymore. I resigned from the Metropolitan Police in June of 1967. As if a hand had been removed from a bucket of water, there was no hole when I left. Futility upon futility, all is futility when trying to combat crime and criminals without the barest of means to do so. A form of anarchy, I regret to say, awaits us most assuredly, unless we change our shameless, lax, undisciplined, greedy and selfish ways.